Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome once again to our Sunday morning Bible study. Uh, if you got your Bibles and you want to follow along at home, our uh, passage today is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, and the title is How to Live in the Last Days. Let's go ahead and read our passage. Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In 1988, a guy by the name of Edgar Wisenot produced a booklet, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. The following year, in 1989, he published another booklet about why Jesus didn't come back in 1988 and why he would come back in 1989. And of course, uh, neither one of those came true, and um, uh, 1989 was his last booklet. You know, every once in a while we read about something like this. We read about some uh, crazy religious group that thinks they've predicted exactly uh, when Jesus is going to come back. So they sell everything they own, they go live on a mountain somewhere, and they wait for his return. Th- this has happened so many times over the years that the phrase, the end is near, has literally become a a punchline for comics and for different comedians. Yet, it's virtually the exact phrase that Peter uses to begin today's passage. He says, the end of all things is at hand, or the end of all things is near, or the end is is near. So what did Peter mean? Is, Is Peter just another one of these crazy religious People who thinks he's predicted exactly uh, when Jesus is coming back? Did, is, is he just like Edward uh, Wisenot? Did he just mispredict uh, the, the return of Jesus? After all, this letter, you know, 1 Peter, was written 2,000 years ago. Well, I, I certainly don't believe that's the case. Um, we, we need to remember that Peter was with Jesus after the resurrection. If you go back and you read Acts... There was a 40-day time period between the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus where he spent those 40 days teaching them about the kingdom of God. And during that 40 days, they actually had the opportunity to ask him uh, about his return. Uh, Acts chapter 1 says this, or, or Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. He, they basically ask, you know, what about your return? And he said, that you don't need to worry about that. Your job is to be my witnesses. You worry and focus on that. So Peter has been told by Jesus himself that basically that's not any of your business. So I don't think Peter uh, just threw that out the window and decided he was going to predict the return of Jesus. No, he, he's not a bad uh, predictor. So maybe... Peter meant something else. Instead of a specific date, maybe Peter is teaching that Jesus could come back at any moment because everything that needs to happen before he returns has already 
happen? Well, I don't think that's the case either for several reasons. First of all, when Peter wrote this letter, Jerusalem had not yet been destroyed. The temple had not yet been destroyed. As best we know, uh, Peter would have died around AD 65 and the temple wasn't destroyed until five years later in AD 70. Yet Jesus in Mark 13 had told the disciples that one of the signs, one of the things that had to happen before he returns would be the the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and then an an undefined what Jesus called time of the Gentiles had to uh, occur. Well, neither one of those had, had, had happened yet. Another thing Jesus told the the disciples was that that the world had to be completely evangelized uh, before the end would come. In Matthew 24, he said this, This gospel of the kingdom must first be preached in all the world as a testimony to all the nations. Then the end will come. Well, that certainly had not happened while Peter is uh, writing this letter. And finally, I'm sure that Peter is familiar with the teaching of Paul, where Paul said, that day can't come until there's a great rebellion, a great falling away, and the, the man of lawlessness uh, called the son of destruction, or the son of perdition, must first arise. Well, none of those things have happened. So, as Peter sits down to write this letter, he clearly could not have meant that the return of Jesus was imminent, that it could have happened at any second or any day. He knew that was not to be the case. So, what did he mean? Well, If you go back and study the New Testament, you see all of these phrases used several times. The end of all things, the last times, the last days, the end of the ages. What these all the apostles are referring to when they use this phrase is they're just referring to the period of time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of of Jesus. Let me give you some examples. Peter himself, earlier in this letter, said this. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but he was made manifest or made known in the last times. So, so Peter says when, when Jesus was made known, when he was born into this earth, it was the last times. Um, Acts 1, 16-17. Once again, this is the Apostle Peter speaking. This is the day of Pentecost. You know, they're in the upper room. The Holy Spirit falls. They come out into the street, and Peter preaches a sermon. And this is what he said. This, he's talking about what what they're seeing with the Holy Spirit. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. So Peter says, this is it. This is the last days. Hebrews chapter 1 says this, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in the last days he's spoken to us by his Son. So once again, the writer of Hebrew is referring to the time that Jesus was on the earth as the last days. Hebrews 9.26, uh, talking about the, uh, the uh, crucifixion of Jesus, said this, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. Now again, he's talking about uh, the death of Jesus uh, at the end of the ages. So, What you see here is when Jesus Christ broke into this world as a little baby, born in that town of Bethlehem, the final era of time on this earth began. The clock started ticking. And this age, regardless of how long it lasts, is known as the end of all things, the last ages, the last times, or the last days. Now, 2,000 years have gone by. 
and numerous predictions, Edgar, Edgar Wisenot and, and numerous others have come and said, Jesus is returning on this date, and he's coming back on this date. And they've all proven to be false. And as I said earlier, the, the idea or the phrase, the end is near, has literally become a, a, a laughing stock among the world. But the fact is, Peter predicted this exact thing. In his second letter, chapter 3, Peter says this, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. Now again, he's saying scoffers will be in the first century, scoffers will come in the fifth century, in the 15th century, and the 21st century. Sometime in these last days, in this last era, scoffers will come, and they're going to say, where's he at? Where's he at? Where's Jesus? This Jesus y'all keep talking about, where's he at? And Peter says this, don't overlook this one fact, beloved. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. I love what Peter says that. Don't overlook the fact. This is a fact. God's view of time is different from ours. In his view, Jesus has only been in heaven two days. A thousand years is that a day. He's only been there a couple days. So it's not that long with God. His patience is meant to lead us to repentance. So I started out the lesson like this because I want you to see that when Peter talks about the end times, he's he's speaking in the same way that you or I talk about the, the end times. Um, we understand that the end is, is near. It may or may not occur in our lifetime, but and Peter understood exactly the same thing. So that makes this passage just as relevant today as it was then. The fact is, for you and I, the end really is near. The judge really is at the door. If anybody dallies with sin, thinking, well, I've got plenty of time, they are playing uh, the fool. And the fact is, even if he doesn't return in my lifetime or your lifetime, the fact is we're all individually very near the end. I'm 57 years old, and, and my time on this earth is much shorter than when I began. And the fact is, I have no guarantee that I'll ever see 58. None of us know for certainty. Uh, that we will be alive tomorrow. So we all should live in the light of the fact that the end of all things is near. If not for the world, then at least for us. Now, does that mean that we we do like some of these wacky religious groups? Do we just sell everything we have and, and go live on a mountain? Um, of course not. That That's not what we're supposed to do. We live with a tension. And this tension that we live with is this. We make plans as if we'll live a long life. At the same time, we conduct ourselves as if we'll die tomorrow. That's the tension that the Christian lives with. So in light of this, Peter has something to say to us. Again, look at verse 7. He says, The end of all things is at hand. In other words, we are living in the last era of time on this, on this earth. Therefore, he says, this is how you should Live now. He's going to give us some commands in four different areas. Uh, areas number one, prayer, uh, the area of love, hospitality, and serving. But before I cover those each one of those areas, I want to talk about the why. Let's go look at verse eleven. You get down to verse eleven. He says, "I want you to do these things." And at the very end, he says this: "In order that in everything." In order that in your prayer life, that in the way you love one another, in the way you show hospitality to one another, in the way you serve one another, in all of those things, God may be glorified 
through Jesus Christ. This goes back, by the way, if you've been with me through this study of 1 Peter, this goes all the way back to what we studied, uh, I think, in chapter 2, that this goes back to our very purpose as Christians, to the very reason we've been chosen, to the, to the very reason we've been born again. Uh, Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 9, You are chosen that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. In this passage, Peter's saying exactly the same thing. He's just phrasing it a little differently. He's saying, I want you to do these things in order that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean to be glorified? It, it means the same thing, right? To, to glorify God means to show forth His excellencies to others. Or, or to put it another way, it's to make God look good like He really is. It doesn't mean make God look better than He is. Our goal is to, is to make it, Him as clear as we can to other people so that they can see how great and awesome and mighty and glorious that He, he really is. I was thinking this week about a, a picture like this. You know, a, a photographer finds a, a scene that he wants to he or she wants to capture and they wait for just the right time and just the right lighting and everything gets right and they and they snap that picture and then you and I come along and we look at that picture and we don't say wow what a great photographer no if if the photographer does his job right then we revel in the beauty of the picture that he that he took we don't we don't sit around and think about how great a photographer he is no, it's the scene that captures us. It's the beauty of the scene that captures us. After all, the photographer didn't create the scene. They didn't do anything to make that. They just capture it with their, their camera. The object is, we, we extol the object toward which they point. See, that is exactly what we are to do for God. When Christians properly glorify God, people don't say, wow, what a great Christian he is. Wow, he, he's a great guy. No, they say what a great God he serves. John Calvin said this, We never truly glory in him unless we utterly put off our own glory. Our job is to try to get out of the way so that people can see him and they're not blinded by us. So this is what Peter is talking about. He's saying you are to live in these last days and you are to glorify God with your life, with your conduct. And he mentions four ways that we can do this, as I said earlier, prayer, love, hospitality, and serving. Now let's take a look at each one of these and what Peter says. Verse 7, he says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. It's always amazing to me when I read the Bible that some of the greatest truths can be uh, revealed in seemingly innocuous verses of Scripture. You know, if you just read through the Scripture, you might just read it and go on. But this verse is an excellent example of that. Peter doesn't just say pray. He could have easily just said you need to pray. But he doesn't. He connects two things to our prayer life. He says you need to be self-controlled and you need to be sober-minded. Now, we don't often do Greek lessons, but here's a, uh, some Greek words here, and I think it'll help us. The Greek word that he uses for self-control is sophronosite. 
And it's got a lot of meanings to have sound judgment, to be clear-minded, to be temperate, to be self-controlled, sensible, serious, alert. The other word he uses is nepsate, which basically means to be sober, and it means not to be drunk or uh, to abstain from, from wine. Now, these two words are very closely linked in Peter's mind. He's talking about a man or a woman who's not swayed by fluctuating emotions. They're not, they don't change course with the winds of, of culture. The, the, uh, by the way, this, both of these words are used as a requirement for, a, for an elder in a church. 1 Timothy 3.2 says this, Therefore an overseer, an elder or a bishop or a pastor, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, that's the word nepsate, and self-controlled, that's the word sophronosite, uh, and it goes on respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. The opposite of this it would be somebody like uh, described by James in chapter 1. He says, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So here he's describing a man or a woman who is self-controlled. They're, they're a person that's clear-minded. They've got sound judgment. They're, 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 they're sturdy. Right? They're serious. They're not, they're not swayed. They don't go from one opinion to the next. The culture doesn't change them. They are just steady on. Now, the question becomes, what does this have to do with our prayer life? Right? I mean, that's what he's saying. For the sake of your prayers, be that way. Well, let me give you two thoughts here. The first thought is this. Paul connects the word sophronosite with how we think about ourselves. We see this in his letter to the Romans, chapter 12. He says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. That's that word, sophronosite, each according to the measure of, of faith. So, so what he's saying is don't, don't see, yourself, see yourself clearly. See yourself the way you really are. See, when we, when we see ourselves for who we really are, when, you, when we're clear-minded with regard to ourselves, it will tend to move us to prayer because we'll recognize our own sinfulness and our own weakness. At the same time, when we're clear-minded, we recognize God's holiness and God's strength. So both of those things should move us to prayer. One more thought. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul writes this, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But we belong to the day, so let us be sober. There's that word nepsate again, or nepsate again. And it's the opposite of this is to be drunk or to sleep. And so, you know, you understand Peter's describing a person who's alert, who's awake, not a person who's drunk or asleep or, or not of a sound mind. You know, this made me think about... Um, the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, and Jesus, uh, Peter is there, and he, he goes to pray, and he comes back, and he finds his disciples sleeping, not alert, not awake, and he said to Peter, could you not watch with me one hour? You see, Peter wasn't nepsate, right? He wasn't alert. He wasn't sober. He was sleeping, and when he should have been alert, he should have been watchful, he should have been awake, 
And as a result, he fell into temptation and sin. You see, in these last days, our enemy is prowling about like a roaring lion. Shouldn't we be alert? Shouldn't we be in prayer both for ourselves, our family, our church, our friends, one another? The second thing that Peter brings up here is love. Look at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. We're not going to revisit the importance of love here. We've, we've covered this multiple times. But suffice it to say, according to 1 Corinthians 13, that without love, nothing else matters. You're just making noise. You, you, it doesn't matter. Paul, Paul said, if I give my body to be burned and I don't have love, it's of no importance, right? So why is Peter bringing it up in relation here to the last days? The word that popped out to me here is the word ektine, which is used for earnestly. And this Greek word means to stretch or strain. And it's used of an athlete who's running a race. And they get near the end and they're tired. And they've expended all this energy. And at the end of the race, they have to stretch or strain. They have to reach down and, and pull out all their uh, resources in order to finish the race. Listen, that is us in the last days. As we see the Lord's coming, being near, or as we see the end of our life drawing near, Peter's saying, exert yourself, strain to love one another. You know, this implies, by the way, once again, that love is not an emotion. Love is an action. Another way to say it, I read this week, it's more sweat than sweet. And I want you to notice how Peter how Peter kind of relates this. He, he references Proverbs 10.12. Proverbs 10.12 said this, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. I think that goes toward Peter's point. You know, the one who loves doesn't keep a feud going. I tell you, the world right now is full of hate. There's no love covering sin. Love says, you know what? You made a mistake. Let's move past it. Hatred just wants to pound you with that mistake over and over and over again. And we're seeing it in this cancel culture where people are bringing up mistakes that people made years ago and they're getting fired, they're getting suspended, all kind of things are happening. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't do that. Love, love covers it. It doesn't mean you did wrong. You didn't do wrong. It's just saying, you know what, let's move past it. I forgive you. See, that's what the world should see from us. In the last days. See, in the last days, the world, it's going to get worse and worse. But we should get better and better. We should be forgiving wrongs, not stirring up strife. After all, that glorifies God. What we're seeing in the world today, uh, that doesn't glorify God. When you're, when you're keeping feuds going, you're retaliating, you're holding a grudge, you're, you're, you're just castigating people for mistakes, that doesn't glorify God in the least. We cannot be that type of people. Number three, hospitality. Once again, this, this same exact word is a requirement of an elder. I just used this in 1 Timothy 3, 2, but an overseer or an elder is to be hospitable. You got to remember, in Peter's day, there wasn't a lot of Hampton Inns. Uh, there, there wasn't a lot of Courtyard Marriott's. There wasn't hotels that you could stop and have a clean stay and, uh, and be safe. Uh, Christians often needed a place to stay. Evangelists needed a place to stay as they, as they traveled. So the church was always exhorted by Peter, by Paul, by James, 
open your homes, not just to your friends, but open your homes to Christians, even if you don't know them. In fact, the word hospitality literally means a lover of strangers. You see, this is love in action. And we're to do the same. It's a different time. I understand that. There are places to say. But the fact is, we are to open up what's ours for others. Not just those we know and love, but for brothers and sisters in Christ that we don't even know at all. Number four, the last one that Peter brings up, this method of conduct or area of conduct that we are to engage in in the last days is serving one another. Let's read verses 10 and 11. It says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks as oracle of, as, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, Peter's doing something very broad. He's dividing spiritual gifts into two very distinct categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts. Now, speaking gifts are usually the more visible. Uh, this would be preaching, uh, like Pastor Henry does. Uh, this would, uh, would be teaching. It would be exhortation. Let's say you're a counselor and you sit down with somebody and, and you're counseling them with your words. Gifts like that, that tend to be more outward. Serving gifts are usually more behind the scenes. Things like doing good deeds, uh, helping, showing mercy, uh, giving, administration, uh, things like that. Now, the New Testament is very clear that every believer has at least one gift. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says this, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. You can also see Romans 12 and Ephesians 4 where it talks about the same thing, that each one of us has a, a gift. That means that in some form or fashion, each one of us is a steward of a talent. We're a steward of a resource that God has given us to use for His glory. We're all uniquely equipped. You know, nobody's more important. We all, have, uh, you know, if you build a wall, every brick counts, right? If you if you build a, a big dam, every block, everything counts. We all count. It, it, it's God has designed each one of us with unique gifts so that the body can be built up and edified and grow and mature and be more like Christ. No gift is insignificant. Now, he says a couple things. He says this, as far as the speaking gifts. He says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Now, by the way, he does not mean that whoever's speaking is speaking divine revelation. That's not what he's saying, or, or speaking under divine inspiration. What he's calling attention to is the seriousness with which you should deal or communicate God's word. When you preach or when you teach or when you counsel, you should never be tossing out human opinions. Your job is to bring people face to face with the authoritative truth of God's word. That's your, that's your gift. If you're just spouting opinions, uh, you're misusing the gift. Bring them face to face with God's word and let the Holy Spirit do what he does. Peter goes on to say, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. By the way, these other gifts, one of the things this points to, and Peter goes out of his way to say this, is this need to depend on God, no matter how mundane the task. You see, God is an abundant source of strength. If he commands us to do something, or if he gives us a talent to do something, 
He's going to give us the strength to do it. I hear a lot these days about burnout in Christian ministry. And I think the reason we see that a lot is people are not serving a couple things. Number one, people are not serving in the gift maybe that God gave them. They're in another gift, and, and it's hard work, right? It's stressful because it's, you're in the wrong place. You're in the wrong gift. Another thing is, is they're depending too much on themselves. Maybe they've got the gift, but they're depending too much on themselves and, and trying to do it in their strength as opposed to depending on, on God's strength. I think if Christians were serving in the strength that God gives, as Peter says, we would hear a lot less about uh, burnout. I want to close with this, just a real quick thought on motivation. You know, some people get involved in serving the Lord for a lot of reasons. Some people do it for the wrong reasons. They they want to, they've got their own needs for love or for recognition. They want somebody to, to pat them on the back. Invariably, by the way, uh, things that you do will go unnoticed and unrewarded. And, when, and if you're in it for that reason and people don't recognize you, then you're going to get hurt and you're going to get offended and that's, that's just going to happen, right? There are others who serve with, let's say, better motives. Maybe they want to help people with their problems. Maybe uh, they want to see more people get saved. Maybe they want to see their church grow in numbers. Now, that sounds good, right? But what happens when those things don't occur? What happens when you get involved in somebody's life to help them with their problems and, and, and you look around one day, a year's gone by, and they've not made any progress at all? They don't really want to be helped. What if you're, you're laboring and laboring and laboring and you're not seeing the numbers grow? You're not seeing people uh, come to Christ. See, the fact is, even those are, quote, good reasons, you're going to be disappointing. So what should be our motive for serving God? Well, it's His glory. That's what Peter said. Do these things for the glory of God. This is the only thing that should ever motivate us. And it's the only thing, by the way, that allows us to persevere without burning out. I'm not dependent on people slapping me on the back. I'm not dependent on people telling me how great a job. I'm not even dependent on the results. I'm just dependent. All I care about is that he gets the glory that he gets the glory, that he gets the glory. You serve like that, there is no such thing as burnout. One final question before we close here today. Are you ready? In 1959, you can go Google this, the Queen of England came to Chicago. I forget exactly what the reason was. And uh, the city knew she was coming, and so they made these elaborate preparations. They, they cleaned up, I think she came over at that time on a ship, and they cleaned up the wharf and the dock and, and they, they, they cleaned up all the streets and just got everything ready. And one of the things they did is they contacted these different hotels um, to try to get, hey, the queen's coming, uh, some of her people may have to stay there, her entourage or whatever. And they contracted the Drake Hotel and they, and they told him, hey, you need, the manager said, you need to get ready. And this is what he said. He said, well, we don't have to do anything. Our rooms are always ready for royalty. Now let me say, that's a great testimony for the Drake Hotel. But the question is, what about us? You see, the fact, the king is coming. The king is coming. And, and we're not to go to a hilltop and wait. We are to be at work. The Bible tells us work for the night is coming. Make, make, make the best you can of the time that you have. 
So I ask you this question this morning as we close. Are you living a life so that others can truly see how great God is? Are you depending on Him in prayer? Are you loving others as you should? Are you giving of what you have? And are you using the gift that God has bestowed upon you? You see, the fact is, our life should always be ready for royalty. So don't let His coming catch you unprepared. Are you ready? Father, as always, what a word uh, Peter has given us this morning. And I'm just, week after week, as I come to these passages, I just... The message is always so, so powerful to me. And I hope in some way or some form, some fashion, that I'm able to communicate this uh, through this, through this uh, uh, venue that we're, we're using. Lord, help us to be people of the day. Help us to be people that are alert and awake and, and understand the times that are around us. And not be afraid, not be afraid, not be anxious, but be courageous and take every opportunity we can to shine the light on God, shine the light on His Son, Jesus Christ, to make sure that they get the glory. Holy Spirit, help us. I know that's what you came for. You came to be a helper. You came to glorify Jesus Christ. Just let us be a part of that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.